loving like talking with you guys and really learning about what life is like. My dream is to give the rights, give the freedom to the women of my country. How can I get married? It's everybody's right. Your family or your freedom. There's more to my story. There's more to our story. There's more to my story. Hey, I'm your host, Sarah Little, and you're listening to the More to Her Story podcast. You'll hear from journalists, thought leaders, social entrepreneurs, and of course, girls who are changing the game in their countries and communities. Thanks for choosing to be a part of the conversation, and I'll see you inside. Prince Zaid Al Hussein is a Jordanian former diplomat who's the president and CEO of the International Peace Institute. He's the former United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights and is the Perry Worldhouse Professor of the Practice of Law and Human Rights at the University of Pennsylvania. Prince Aid is a member of the Elders, an independent group of world leaders and human rights advocates brought together by Nelson Mandela in 2007. Zaid is a friend and I was honored to have him on the podcast this month. Enjoy our conversation. Zaid, how has your faith in however you think about or conceptualize the word faith shaped who you are and what you do in the world? Well, it must have to a certain degree, or if not, uh, uh, I think to a great degree, shaped it. Um, It's uh, a value system. It's your understanding of of reality um, that is shaped from a very young uh, from a very young age and then and then through adolescence um and it and then of course you're testing it uh and uh weighing it and uh, with the realities that you experience and how it corresponds to that and uh and how we then understand the grammar and interpret the grammar of the world that we we see unfolding before us and i think to a certain or to a great extent, that's how it's shaped. And if my uh, early life was uh, in my own country in Jordan, um, certainly some of the earliest memories go back to uh, the wars that my family experienced um, and lived through when I was very young. Um, Being in a country that uh, was surrounded by conflicts Uh, also makes you understand how if value systems uh, sort of derived from the monotheistic religions in particular, because those are the ones I'm most familiar with and my own in particular, Islam, then you can, you have something to understand and visualize, you know, the realities that we experience. And so I think to a certain to a great extent, it does shape it like that, it does shape your view um, uh, later on in life. I know you as a friend, but I, I feel like I know very little about your upbringing in Jordan. What was your upbringing like? Well, it, it was, I think, extraordinary in many respects. Many friends uh, of my family sent their children to the Orthodox school in Amman. And um, I thought there was something quite extraordinary about the fact that um, we were Muslim students in a Christian school in a Muslim country. And uh, that understanding of how 
relationships uh, are created, identities are created, how it all fits. You know, the friends I had were mainly Christian. And yet there were a number of Muslims in this, in this school. And yet we all saw each other as classmates, as being Jordanian, as being of one social fabric, and uh, not seeing ourselves divided, not see us, seeing ourselves in any way um, separate. Later on, uh, when, uh, or when I was first, I think, exposed to uh, sermons that were more fiery, uh, Friday sermons, and where a finger was pointed at the Christian population as if they were outside the house of faith, um, it sort of struck me as being very strange because uh, we were otherwise a country where there was no uh, sense of discrimination between the Christian population and the Muslim population. Um, and the feeling was that we were all part of one country. You have obviously spent your life, you know, fighting for human rights. You've had a long and successful career in diplomacy. Were there any particular events or influences in your early life that really steered you more strongly in that direction? Yes, I, um, my first <clears throat> job after I finished my military service was working with the UN. And um, I, um, I worked as a peacekeeper for two years in the former Yugoslavia, so stationed in Zagreb, um, but with access to much of the theater of conflict, uh, i.e. Bosnia, Herzegovina, and Macedonia. And, um, and at first, uh, exposure to the, the destructiveness of war, I mean, it was so extreme. Um, I, your senses can hardly believe this is happening and that people do this sort of thing to each other and do this sort of thing to each other at the close of the 20th century, which was filled to overflowing with uh, blood and that we still seemingly hadn't learned any lessons from it. Um, and I think most of us who were there considered it a cruel war, unnecessary war, uh, where neighbors turned on each other almost um, for reasons that seemed a trifle because the name was different or the, the ethnicity was seemingly or believed to be different um, or religion or the religion was different. I mean, religion is, uh, these are not trifle in themselves, but the, the certainly didn't seem to be grounds for the butchery that we were seeing or for the genocide that one side was going to exact on, on another. And, um, yeah, I think all, a lot of us who served there came out thinking that if given half a chance, uh, we would we would not commit the same mistakes that the senior leaders of uh, governments or the UN indeed uh, committed, yeah. and we would do better. And I think that informed me a great deal. You played a very significant role in the establishment of the International Criminal Court which is the first and only permanent international court uh, with jurisdiction to prosecute individuals for crimes of genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes. And you were instrumental in laying the groundwork for what it is today. When you look at what you helped build today, how do you view and measure the effectiveness of the ICC in delivering international justice, particularly in light of the current and compounding crisis that we're seeing around the world. Yeah. So I, I just I, I, I just want to caution against 
any exaggeration on my part of my role. Um, I was a negotiator of one piece just before the court was inaugurated. Um, and before that, I was part of a Jordanian delegation. So yes, I, together with many others, but there were some really critical people who uh, were uh, responsible for the drafting of the Rome Statute. I'd like to think I played a, a sort of a minor role in that. But in 2002, when the court was uh, when entered into force, so to speak, when the Rome Statute entered into force, when it became, when it had uh, legal power, um, a governing body was established to then set up the court, and I led that. So I was, I led the, as you're saying, when the, we had a plan, but we didn't have very much more than that, and I had to appoint the first employee and uh, get the court physically up and running. Um, and I spent three years doing that. And uh, But again, without the help of so many others, it would have been impossible. So the, there are many who were central to the establishment of the court. The court um, is basically a reminder of, uh, to governments of what they themselves and states, what they themselves should be doing. Uh, the court is essentially a court uh, that sits in reserve. If states are doing their job, and whenever there, there's credible uh, evidence that uh, crimes that are organized and planned, principally by the state itself, and the state is not investigating these crimes, then uh, it has already uh, taken the decision. I mean, it sounds funny, right? Because you've already handed over jurisdiction to the International Criminal Court. So let's say a government basically agrees to be party to the Rome Statute. Uh, I have then ceded authority to the ICC. The ICC says, okay, but you are the jurisdiction that will be exercised first. And if, uh, so let's say, you know, a government commits genocide against its own people, it's overthrown, another government comes in, the government says, well, we, are, we have uh, ratified the ICC statute. You know, we are unwilling to now get involved in the prosecution of those guilty for the genocide. So we want the court to do it. So the court then does it. Or if there's a government that's unwilling, uh, sorry, incapable or un, uh, you know, just simply cannot do it, then the ICC does. So the, court, the ICC is there as a court of last resort. And it, it has one critical feature. And this uh, came from the Nuremberg trials, that uh, official capacity is irrelevant. In other words, if the head of state or government, who normally is entitled to sovereign immunities, is thought to be responsible for the commission of crimes, the, rec the, the statute won't recognize the official capacity. You know, you, you will be seen as a suspect and, uh, and not more than that. And you're not entitled to sovereign, what's called sovereign immunities. Hmm. And this is a huge development. I mean, you know, uh, since almost the beginning of when sovereigns roamed the earth, they were entitled to immunities. And here, you know, well over 100, maybe 120 now, have voluntarily given up that protection to be under the jurisdiction of the court, which is a huge step forward. So the court is attempting to overturn you know, thousands of years of practice. That is, that we can kill and maim and destroy as we like uh, and not fear any consequence internationally. That, of course, changed in the 20th century 
when uh, when trials became more commonplace for atrocities committed, for violations well beyond the bounds of the law, mm-hmm. and uh, and so it made sense that the ICC come into being. But we sort of knew it was going to take time. I don't think we we it's quite suspected that it would take this long. Uh, and I knew from the very beginning that it would only have a deterrent effect uh, when you have the first sitting head of state brought up before the court. Mm. And, then, and then once charged and once it proceeds, then you, you know, we had a, a almost, an almost case with, with uh, Kenyatta, uh, but the charges were dropped and the charges were dropped against, uh, against the current president of Kenya. Um, but if you had a, a successful then um, prosecution of a, a sitting head of state, then the chilling factor, the deterrent factor would really be there. And mm. so with any institution that you build, you need some luck. And sometimes the luck eludes you for a while and then it comes. So so it's it's not to say that the court hasn't been successful, you know, but we're still in the stages where it's being built, I would say. In 2014, you became the sixth UN High Commissioner for Human Rights and the first Arab and Muslim to do so. During your tenure, you were known for holding countries to account for their human rights violations. How did you maintain a balance of being diplomatic and um, being forthright about human rights abuses around the world? Well, it's a, it's a great question because I I believe that in that position, there's a sort of a, a diplomacy in the advocacy. Yeah? That you, you, there are a number of things. One is the, it's good to be predictable when it comes to the uh, forcefulness of being, of being outspoken. I think if they all, the, all the states recognize that you uh, have the capacity to speak out and that you will likely do so if there are violations, that predictability is good. But sometimes it's good to be unpredictable how you do some of that. For instance, when I first uh, became uh, high commissioner, it was very uh, normal for previous high commissioners to share their first their speeches. There's a, a speech that you begin with in September of the year you begin uh, your, your work. And this is at the Human Rights Council. And it had been usual for uh, former high commissioners to share a copy of the speech with the the member states the governments two or three days before delivery so they would have a look through it they can prepare they no shocks there you know i and i got rid of that (laughs) i i from the very beginning didn't want that and i wanted them to sit and wait and see if they were going to be named or not and it's partly because we didn't really often have the speech ready till the monday morning and monday would be the day of the of delivery and so we'd be working up, uh, working on it up, up until the last minute. And then I thought, well, also, I had served in the UN Security Council. And if the uh, agenda item concerned a particular country, that country didn't have an advanced copies of our speeches. So why, why, why change the system? And uh, member states can wait for the, the statement. So there, it, I was on, there you can see I was both predictable and unpredictable. Unpredictable in the beginning because everyone expected something else, uh, but then predictable because I was never going to share the statement ahead of time. <laughs> it was always going to be upon delivery. 
But I think the idea was that that we would work uh, with all member states, uh, and most of the work is quiet diplomacy. And but we had no um, no hesitation to go public if we believed we needed to go public. And I had a, a brilliant staff, and it wasn't me operating on my own, but uh, the various divisions, the various heads of the divisions, and various. Um, uh, senior colleagues would often come and say, we need to say something on this situation or that, and, and then we'd talk about it and then do it. And so it was a, a team effort, really. I'm always interested in how like different leaders lead. Uh, and obviously the top human rights post at the UN is, you know, it requires a huge deal of integrity, a huge deal of leadership. Looking back on your time as human rights chief, what was a particularly challenging situation that you faced that you had to navigate as a leader? I, I think the most difficult thing is the uh, the emotional challenge. Um, you know, it's um, it, there's a it, there's an awful feeling when uh, when people that you visit or you sit with expect so much from you in terms of delivering them from suffering and you know you can give uh, speeches and you can give press conferences and uh and but they are not going anywhere they're going to remain in their refugee camp or internally displaced uh, camp and you and you think you know in one way who am i who am i fooling you know um i can only do so much and yet so much is expected and you can't help but feel that no matter what you do, it's never enough. And, um, and it's, a, it's an awful feeling. I have to say, I, I sometimes used to finish these visits and be out so outraged and then have to do a press conference. And, uh, you know, I almost would want to do nothing else, but attack the people responsible for the suffering cause. Um, so outrageous. Um, and so that is hard. I, I think for most high commissioners, whether they want to admit it in the beginning or not, uh, dealing with pressure from governments is not that difficult. After a while, I mean, in the beginning, you might have to get used to it, but then you get used to it. But if you feel that the, the community that depends upon you um, somehow, you know, does not believes that you're not doing your absolute best to advocate their positions, that's an awful feeling. And I'd like to think I never really felt that. Um, but sometimes I just felt totally uh, insufficient or whatever I was doing seemed insufficient to the uh, enormity of what it was that I, we had to confront. And that, that I think, is very hard emotionally uh, to navigate. It's, it's not easy at all. No. Is there anything you would have done differently during your time as... Human rights chief. Well, I, I think by the time I it was in my fourth year, uh, I really understood the the job and how one ought to do it. At least I felt I knew how to how to do it. Um, and and so uh, of course, if I could do it again, I wouldn't make the sort of errors perhaps that I did in the first couple of years. And I would know which areas to really focus on where we think we could have maximum benefit some areas that i didn't spend enough time on that i should have spent enough time on i should have spent enough time working with treaty bodies for example the nine treaty the committees they're independent and we support them but maybe i should have done more to support them 
and I recognize that that probably was a mistake. Um, but I, we had so much on our agenda, and I, I had to sort of get through that. But I, only when I was in my fourth year did I feel uh, sort of uh, enough of a command of much of this that I could, I, I knew where the efficiencies and where I need to invest more time. Um, but that always comes late. Um, and I, so clearly, I, I would have uh, done things differently had I had that knowledge. Or if I had another four years, I think the next the four years, uh, uh, the, fourth, the second 40-year term would have been different to the first. Um, or it would have been more the same, but even <laughs> more accentuated, so to speak. So um, um, I think that's where I would have taken it. And I would have tried to, I also often thought about why the human rights movement is so disconnected from from uh, the 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 uh, grassroots movements which are usually partitioned women's rights uh, rights of persons with disabilities or black lives matter or you know these are all very serious movements with a, a long uh, with a, a sort of long following or a, a deep following um and you seldom, though, see, for instance, a march through a city, just a human rights march, right? Mm -hmm. They're usually one of the partitioned causes. And um, and what would be interesting to see is whether you could actually create a human rights march where all these separate movements support each other and all part of one. And I think I would have devoted more attention to, to seeing whether that's possible. Because the office itself is rather unique in the UN. You know, it's part of the UN, certainly, but it's also part of the human rights movement. And mm. most of the, uh, the rest of the UN isn't like that. Right? It isn't part of the two. It's part of one. Yeah, someone call it the toughest job at the UN. Yeah, it, it, well, I, I lost a lot of friends. <laughs> so I was once <laughs> walking along a, a hallway with a, with a friend from uh, OHCHR. And he said to me, you know, High Commissioner, I think we're invisible. And I, I said, why? And he said, because when we go past delegations, they don't try to make eye contact. They look straight through you as if you don't exist. <laughs> they don't want to stop and talk. <laughs> so yeah. and many, of those, many of those people were once friends. And, uh, and I did lose them, some permanently. Fortunately, not everyone. And, and I've remained friends with many of them since. I guess the, the good ones remain, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How have you seen the landscape of, of global human rights change over the course of your career? Well, it ebbs and flows, you know, and there's no doubting that over 70 years, there have been huge strides made uh, on the, across the human rights agenda. And, uh, and there's enormous counter pressure as well. Uh, whenever one advance takes place, you have a reaction to it. Um, and that's the story of human progress. Um, when those advocating, advocating the, the abolition of slavery first began to speak, and it began from a spiritual corner, right? it usually began with those who felt uh, this, that this practice is so outrageous, it has to stop. But they would have been a minority in a in a world that profited hugely from slavery. The business model was almost perfect. The 
capital costs when it comes to labor were zero. Uh, huge profits derived from it, and everyone benefited except the slaves. And then, uh, and then the abolition, the abolition movement began, and the hatred towards them must have been phenomenal, because everyone else was making money out of it. And they were like, uh, they must have been like, what, what are you doing? I mean, how could we abolish this? Our, our economies depend on it. And, uh, but they started and they spoke from a moral position and an ethical and religious position. And it was overturned, in, you know, successively in many parts of the world. That we still have modern day slavery uh, is still incontestable. Yes, we do have things that approximate what slavery once was. Uh, but the sheer cruelty and dimensions of what we experienced was, uh, was of course, no credit to, to, to us. It was absolutely shameful beyond belief that we could do this to other human beings. But so much, when, of, when, when you look at so much of progress uh, in the human rights field, you will notice the sort of the pushback as well. Mm. Uh, that for some, there's always going to be an element of of uh, threat, a threat to a way of living, a threat to an, a sort of unwillingness to change, unwillingness to learn, and um, and so it, it, some in some issues you on some issues you need patience, and others you need to be very forceful in your advocacy. And yeah. uh, getting it right is always uh, getting it right is always uh, important. Uh, uh, this, the situation we're in now is that there's enormous pressure on the human rights movement. Uh, across the world, and um, and you know, if we don't have the the this to hold on to, you know, we're looking at an anarchic world. I mean, a world that's driven sheer, completely by uh, 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 anarchy and nothing else. I mean, all the sort of the the basic uh, lodestars, the basic polar, uh, you know, um, orientation that we would need was, would be gone. And so we'd uh, we'd be adrift, and so let's hope that doesn't uh, happen. How do you view the role of gender equity in international diplomacy and human rights work? Well, I think it's important for everyone to know and realize, and I mean everyone in the movement understands this, that uh, equity is not equality. That uh, equity is something else. Equity is the historic dimensions to the inequality and what's required to create equal societies is a huge investment uh, in those uh, uh, communities where uh, historically uh, one half of the community has been subjugated by the other and been uh, abused uh, and mistreated grievously and it's not good enough just to say, well, we just want equal representation. Certainly that's important, but it's also to make amends for the historic and deep disadvantages that half of the world uh, had to experience. And, uh, and the way in which you know, people still view um, uh, gender issues, gender-related issues, or you know, how they view the importance of women. In many parts of the UN, for example, you know, women's importance basically focuses mainly during their reproductive age. 
you know, when you look, and uh, this is something that was uh, discussed recently in my home, when you look at, you know, not so much what women need, but you ask women, what is it that they want? In many countries, they will say, we want literacy. We want to be able to read. You know? And when so much, and then you realize, you know, how much, because if you ask them what they, what they need, they will say they need, you know, to make sure that their children are safe when they go to school, that they, their, their children are healthy, that they, you know, it's always focused on someone else, not themselves. Mm. And then when, when that question is turned into what, you, what do you want? And they'll say, we want to be able to read and write. We want to be able to read documents. We want to be able to file, you know, a claim. We want to be able to negotiate a price in a, in a marketplace, mm. you know. And so, so it's not just representation, but it's going back and realizing the distinct lack of opportunity, the, what the lack of an education really means for them, uh, if it means for any society over the course of a, of a lifetime. And, um, and yeah. so all of that is, is critically important, of course. In, in regions or situations where there's significant resistance to uh, gender equality and empowering women and girls. What strategies um, have you found effective in advocating for women's rights? Yeah, I, you know, the, the, you're now asking me to divulge, divulge secrets. <laughs> no, the, I think the, the way in which one would approach this is that there's so much of the human rights agenda over which most religious traditions and religious belief concord. I mean, there's an agreement, right? You know, there is an agreement that tyrannical or unjust rule is unacceptable. There's an agreement that we ought not to uh, kill unlawfully, that we ought not to torture, that we ought not to um, have humans disappear from the face of the earth without any accounting of them. And you can go on and on. And so much of the agenda is not occupied by disagreement. Um, there are some very distinct issues over which there is considerable disagreement. Um, uh, one is uh, sexual and reproductive rights. Uh, the other is the uh, uh, status of the LGBTQI community uh, over which there's a significant tension and then uh, when it comes to the extent to which women enjoy certain rights, and then you can sort of say also on the civil and political side, there would be some tensions. And the question is there, if there are disagreements, you know, it's not a, a creating a situation where uh, two sides are speaking to each other and no one's listening, but it's a question of two sides speaking to each other and listening is taking place even if disagreements are there. And uh, one would like to make the argument that if you were trying to convince another side of the merits or importance of these issues, that you first of all sort of agree that on so much else you already have an understanding. We all agree that there should be fair trial standards, for example. Right? No one wants to be uh, brought before a court and judged unfairly or unjustly. And so we can often start there and then broaden the discussion to include everything else. Mm. That was a very diplomatic answer. 
That was a good answer. Good answer. That was the right answer. The right answer. Uh, you recently joined the Elders, an independent group the, of global leaders founded by Nelson Mandela, working for peace, justice, and human rights. Are you the youngest elder? I'm the, oh, yes, I think I am the baby elder. I, uh, there, is, there is the former president of Mongolia. I think he's a few months older than I am. Is there like an the internal military. competition about who's the youngest, the baby elder? Yes, and the most militant. And that's why when you call me diplomatic, I'm not sure I, I like it. What is your vision for the future of the elders? And what legacy would you like the organization to leave for the next generation of global leaders? So I, I like to imagine, um, I never met the great uh, Nelson Mandela. Um, I like to imagine when he conceived of setting up the elders, that he was thinking of the way in which elders in a traditional community will, would work, um, that you have a group of uh, people who have experienced a great deal to whom issues are brought, um, whether there's a dispute inside the community or uh, the, uh, that needs sort of a mediation or whether there's a wrongful act uh, for which the uh, elders in the community can offer an opinion and guidance. And um, so I like to, to imagine that this is what he was thinking when, when this group was created and that we can, we can be grumpy and say things that no one else will say, um, or at times uh, be asked to, to mediate um, between those who have a dispute between them and, uh, and see whether or not we can resolve um, resolve those issues. So I, I'd like to imagine that so long as the world is in the, the state it's presently in, there's a need for elders. Perhaps if we manage to carve out a path for us where there's far less stress and anxiety, far more certainty that we can overcome these obstacles and that uh, there would be not so much of a need for a group like the elders because we have strong leadership around the world, moral leadership, moral consistency, and we have a sense of social justice that is propelling us forward. And, uh, and uh, so our future looks, uh, looks um, really healthy. I, we, since we don't have that, we will need the elders for some time to come. Let's talk about the current escalation in Israel and Palestine. Uh, the elders yeah. recently wrote an open letter to the Biden administration. I'm gonna, yeah. I'm going to read a couple of excerpts from it because I find it really powerful. Israelis and Palestinians will not end this conflict on their own. The history is too complicated, the politics too polarized, and the compromises required too difficult. But peace cannot be imposed from the outside. It requires bold leaders with legitimacy and credibility among their peoples and a commitment to two states living together peacefully. Those leaders are not currently in power in Palestine or Israel. De-escalation is not enough. We cannot go back to managing the conflict. It will erupt again and again with more death and misery. The conflict must be resolved permanently through negotiation. What role do you believe that the international community, including the UN and the elders, uh, should play in negotiations related to this conflict? Well, at the moment, um, we are very close to having what seems to be uh, a deal over hostage releases and potentially a four-day pause in the fighting. 
and uh, and clearly machinery will have to be put into place to maintain that pause and effect as the hostages are released and humanitarian aid uh, is uh, accelerated and, and uh, channeled into where it needs to go and those who are wounded brought out or looked after and those uh, who um, those children who whose bodies need to be recovered are recovered and um, and those who need treatment outside of Gaza can be treated and all of that creates a condition where the earliest stages of a discussion will begin and then to see whether or not this can be expanded the Israeli government said this would only be a pause um, and uh, but clearly they seem to be moving in that direction at least uh, from the latest reports we'll see if it happens um, and um, and then the question is um, where do we take it from there mm. uh, the idea of squeezing uh, a large number of uh, Palestinian civilians into this group uh, this strip sorry in the southern part of the Gaza Strip the Mawasi Strip um, is uh, it's filled with potential danger and uh, it's called the safe zone but I think it's clear the UN doesn't believe it would be anything like that and uh, and it would offer no solution uh, mm. and so we'll have to see whether at an early stage um, the this deal brokered by in the main Qatar uh, leads to an opening and together with the UN Security Council decision for uh, a so-called children's pause, whether that takes effect, and then we can we can build uh, some basic and elemental structure for peace from that point on. As we saw on October seventh in Israel, and now we're seeing in Gaza, civilians are the ones that often bear the brunt of war and suffering. Um, how can international human rights? frameworks be better utilized to protect civilian populations in conflict, particularly in the context of this one? Well, the, so uh, you will find that in the human rights field, many of the independent experts and independent bodies, um, this is the intergovernmental UN, are outspoken and morally consistent. It, but, uh, you know, for governments, um, the norm is not that. The norm is the practicing of double standards. And it really has a corrosive effect. And everyone does it, sadly. Everyone does it. And, uh, and it needs to change. And we need to be morally consistent. And uh, you, often when an act is perpetrated, a criminal act, the uh, nationality of the person is irrelevant the act itself will determine whether it's unlawful or not. And the grounds for lawful uh, conduct are very, very restricted, very restricted, you know, and you, and there you have to be very precise. You know, mm -hmm. if I, my life is being threatened directly, I might have the right to self-defense, uh, but that right must be exercised proportionately mm -hmm. and uh, not uh, at the expense of others who are innocent of the initial wrongdoing. And I, I think that adherence to these basic tenets in law are fundamental. If we throw all of it out of the window, we are and we, we are destined to an anarchic world, very anarchic world. And it can't be, and we know how bad it can be. Plus, uh, with the advances in weaponry this century, 
it would be much bloodier than the last and whether we can survive it ultimately it's a major question so we really have no choice but to go back to basics and go back to the basic rules and adhere to them and any violation thereof then must be held accountable the uh, perpetrator must be held accountable is a two-state solution still viable in your opinion I think so. I think it, it can be, um, and uh, but there has to be an all-out effort now to achieve it um, because of the colossal suffering uh, brought on by the heavy bombardments, the blockades on the part of the Israeli government, um, the in intense shelling. I mean, a huge number of Palestinians have been killed, uh, close to 12,000. Uh, I mean, shocking, really. And uh, as you alluded to in, in the beginning, the, the, the uh, initial attack was uh, shocking in itself. And it was, I think, uh, planned to be that, to plan to sort of affect the Israeli psyche at its core. And so the response by Israel has been ferocious. And, um, and that there will come a time when, when uh, we will have to take stock of just the, the, the uh, sheer intensity, the lunacy of all of this, and surely we as humanity can do better in resolving differences than using violence of this form and uh, and finding solutions. We are, we are faced with enormous existential threats from uh, climate change, clearly, potentially another pandemic, AI-generated pathogens, for example, um, AI when it comes to autonomous weapons, potentially as well, nuclear weapons, uh, the guardrails are weakened. We have huge issues to deal with. And the, these uh, problems that we've been dealing with for the last uh, few decades need mm. to be resolved, including the question of the ending of the Israeli occupation, the establishment of a condition where Israelis feel secure uh, and Israel feels secure and Palestine can celebrate its independence on a land that's contiguous and a land that, uh, uh, or at least there were there adjustments, the adjustments are by mutual agreement. And surely, surely that could be possible if an all-out effort is made at this moment or soon. Inshallah. Inshallah. Zaid, what is carrying you through these times right now? What is giving you hope right now? Well, it's uh, thinking about um, how one can resolve these issues in practical terms makes you realize that there is always there are always grants for for hope. You know, it's very easy to, or now it's becoming easier to say why things are happening and and uh, what the background is. Um, that more difficult answer to give to uh, any question is on how do you how do you do it in the detail, not generally say leave it to governments or leave it. Now, how do you actually do it? How do you make the world a little bit safer? And mm. I think the more one works on the practical, the more one has hope that we can make the world safer. So you and have hope in the Well, I have hope work uh, being part of an institute and with the university where we do just that, try and work on the practical side of, of the issues. Uh, it makes us feel that we can make a difference. And therefore, we we offer hope. It's easy if you're not if you don't try to sit there and say, "Oh, it's hopeless. It'll never work. No one will, you know, 
no one will agree to this, but if you're not trying and you're not coming up with, with ideas that are vaguely original, then, um, then of course, you're going, you're going to feel the immense despair. And so, you know, one has to break down these problems into the key issues. And then how do you resolve each of the issues and find a way to resolve it? I know the elders, you know, inter intergenerational dialogue is important to the elders. And also at IPI, you mentor a lot of young people, myself included. And I'm wondering, you know, what, yeah, what advice, what counsel do you have for young people who want to make a change in the world, who want to go into human rights advocacy? Yeah, I think for, for everyone, it's, it's a different uh, way of looking at things. Um, I, you know, you, you always, I think over time, you always uh, sort of, um, you always have to look into yourself and, and sort of raise, ask the question of what, what you think you could be capable of. Uh, I know, for instance, just from the, all the different settings and the meetings I've attended, that, um, that there are many people who are simply not willing to speak out when the need is at, at its high, highest. You know, when, when you're sitting in a meeting where no one dares say anything because they risk being punished for it, it's that one voice that says something that you most admire, that you think, wow, the courage to say that when everyone's thinking it and no one dares say it. Uh, and there's always, there are always a handful of people who are prepared to do it. And it's so amazing because the first instinct in all of us is self-preservation. I'll stay quiet. I'll put my head down. I'll try and survive it. I don't want to say anything. I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to be fired. I don't want to be put in prison. And then you always have these people who must be thinking the same thing and yet are still willing to say something. And you think, wow, I mean, that is quite amazing when that happens. And that restores one's faith in, in humanity. And uh, you see this uh, much more often than you, you, you would expect. Still, it's a rarity because not everyone can do it, but something that you really admire. And if young people have that instinct, you know, if a young person doesn't like to be bullied or doesn't like to see people being bullied, then you are a, a fundamentally a human rights person. The, the humanitarians among us will treat the people who are being bullied, but won't push back on the bully. That is strictly human rights work. And there are people, there are people um, who for, for them, it's normal to do that, normal to push back and, uh, and also potentially experience um, a reaction for doing so. And, and the prisons of the world are filled with people who are immensely courageous for doing exactly that, pointing out government corruption pointing out malfeasance, pointing out something that isn't working right. You know, so it's a, a quite amazing, really. And some of us will actually rise to the highest ranks of human rights work and change the world. And you. So the last question that I end on all of my podcasts, what is the more to your story? Oh, gosh. No, this is, a, this is like a therapy session. I think in the realization in life that we are taught something fundamentally wrong when we believe that uh, contradiction uh, creates in our reality, daily reality, a binary situation. That if, if you hold A to B true, and B is the opposite of A, that B must be false, and either you have A or you have B. And what happens in life is that you have both all the time. 
contradictions all the time. And I think with all of us, um, we can feel confident at times and deeply insecure at others. And the great truth is that the more we know, the less we understand really, the more aware of how little it is that we know, and that we should um, that we should be very careful to be very much, uh, I, I could be accused of this, be seen as um, arrogant or conceited when, when uh, humility is a necessary uh, condition for us to practice because um, we are deeply insecure really as a, as a species and we're too prone to do things which are, which are narrow and selfish and, and um, even if we like to think otherwise. And I think all of us uh, need to be careful. We need to be careful when casting aspersions and, and uh, making comments about the conduct of others because we too have to be very cognizant of the fact that um, there are very few uh, of us who are saints. And most of us, if not all of us, are sinners in various degrees. And we have to all strive to be morally consistent, but it's not always easy to do so. And uh, we, that's very human. And I think that needs recognition as well. I avoided your, I avoided your question by giving a, giving a secret <laughs> answer. No, that was a great answer. And, and knowing you personally, I can say that you're one of the most humble, morally consistent people I've ever met, so. Thank you. This conversation ends here, but you don't have to stop listening. Go to moretoherstory.org or moretoherstoryofficial on Instagram to follow our journalism. And don't forget to check back in twice a month for new episodes. I'm your host, Sarah Little. Thanks so much for listening.